following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 11. Uh... As you're turning there, our plan, uh, as of a couple months ago, was to start a new sermon series this week called Extravagant, uh, Generous Living in Light of the Gospel. Uh, We are going to start that next week. Uh, The Lord impressed upon my heart the need for us to stop as a church and to contemplate the tragic events of this week, to acknowledge these tragedies to mourn with those who mourn, and to ask for God to help us. In case you have somehow missed what has occurred, I am talking about the deaths of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Philando Castile in Minnesota, and Brent Thompson, Patrick Zamaripa, Michael Kroll, Michael Smith, and Lorne Ahrens in Dallas. I believe this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is exceptionally relevant to us in this time. He said this, Like the early Christians, we must move into a sometimes hostile world, armed with the revolutionary gospel of Jesus Christ. With this powerful gospel, we shall boldly challenge the status quo. The status quo in our current cultural climate is to reduce exceptionally complicated issues into overgeneralizations, stereotypes, and emotionally charged rhetoric. The status quo is to not be humble or circumspect, but instead to react, assuming our vantage point is higher and more enlightened than the rest. Our only hope is to call on God for help the only one whose vantage point is truly higher, and ask him to help us carry the revolutionary gospel of Jesus Christ into our hurting and rapidly fracturing culture. The gospel is our only hope. I just want to say that I want to let you know where we're going. Um, my intention is to preach about half the time I normally do and then to spend the remainder of what would normally be the time preaching the word uh, in corporate prayer together, asking for God's help. Because when I say that our only hope is in God and our only hope is in his gospel, I really mean it. And so I want us to take time together and ask him for that. Uh, this will not be polished, not that what I normally preach is. I'm going to speak a lot just from my heart and from uh, what has filled the majority of my thoughts over the last part of this week. Uh, I want you to know that I enter this subject with much trepidation and only as a result of a clear mandate from the Lord to do so. To say that more clearly, 
this can be intimidating, and if it wasn't for God laying a heavy burden on my heart to do it, the tendency would probably be to avoid it. It is intimidating for me to talk about these issues because I've been told to my face that I cannot possibly understand or relate to the struggles of oppressed people because I'm a white male. I'm going to ask all of you hearing this. Sorry, guys. All of you hearing this and who may hear this, not to disregard what the Lord wants to say to us today based on that premise. And if you feel that way, I'm going to ask you to question whether that's really ever the right position to take. I want to tell you a little bit of my story to help you understand. I realize that uh, my posture and emotion right now is violating everything the church growth handbook tells you because you're supposed to have really happy, peppy services all the time because that's what people like. Um, yeah, but sometimes you got to mourn with those who mourn. Lamenting is a part of the emotional range and character of God, and we need to join him in that. So, until the age of 10, I lived in Southern California in a city called Azusa. The school that I attended in elementary was uh, primarily... Hispanic, and so I was one of a handful of Caucasian students, and um, from first to fifth grade, uh, many times and in many different ways, uh, I was bullied and picked on, uh, both verbally and physically. Um, I spent a lot of recesses. Uh, as soon as we got out of the class, I would run around the back of the building where there was a hole in the fence and I would crawl through the hole, and there was a thin strip of woods behind the school, and I would sit there and hide until I heard the bell. So then I would come back out and run back to class because I knew it was safe. And one, uh, one particular day, because of uh, youthful naivety or hopefulness, I don't know, I, I didn't do that, and uh, I went and stood in line uh, to play kickball, so there's probably 50 kids sp spread out on two teams, and so I stood in line, and uh, I was standing there with a dozen or so uh, Hispanic boys, and they began to push me, uh, and kind of all got together and just shoved me about 25 feet away from the line, and uh, said, get out of here, you white piece of crap. They used naughtier language than that, just so you know. Um, and so I stood there a minute, and uh, I, got, I was hurt and embarrassed because everyone there was laughing, uh, pointing at me and whatever else. And so I was really angry, and I was really hurt. And so 
uh, I wiped a couple tears from my eye, and then I, the next time they pitched the ball, I ran sideways into it and intercepted it, and I kicked it outside of the schoolyard, um, which was not smart, but that's what I did. Um, just kind of lashing out after years of being left out and uh, discriminated against and whatever. So just all that anger built up, and, and that was the action I took. And then uh, I paid for it dearly because the same dozen or so boys started chasing me, and uh, I, I took off heading for the hole in the fence because I knew if I could get through that, I could get out of the schoolyard and run home or run to 7-Eleven or do something. Um, <laughs> and so I didn't make it. Uh, they caught me by the tetherball poles, and uh, I think I put up a decent fight, but it didn't didn't work, and so I ended up, one of them caught me, slammed my head into the tetherball pole, and I dropped to my hands and knees, and then about six of them proceeded to start just stomping me out, while the other six created kind of a block, because uh, Rosie, the uh, recess attendant, who was about 70 years old, was already trying to come and get involved and break it up, and so they were boxing her out, so that that uh, she couldn't get in, and so she ended up running towards the principal's office, screaming for help. And in, it's different in California; the, the schools lay out all open, like the hallways are outside, because uh, the weather's predominantly nice. And so she's just running across the open schoolyard, screaming towards the office for help. And so I think it took about five minutes, start to finish, of just being on my hands and knees, covering my head, trying to avoid. Uh, getting killed, really. Um, principal ended up coming in and wading through, picked me up. I was just, I don't think I was knocked out, but I was not moving a lot and carried me to the office and they bandaged me up and had the nurse look at me and such. I had bruised ribs and probably a concussion. I don't know that it ever got really um, diagnosed, but um, I then was out of school for a week and spent uh, the rest of that year, um, I snuck a pocket knife to school every day uh, because I was literally afraid that I, it would happen again. And so I just want to say to you that I, I, I am in no way trying to say that I can relate to the situation and struggles of every oppressed person. I'm just saying to you, I have experienced and understand what it's like to be discriminated against because of the face I was born with. And so, as we move forward, I'm just gonna ask you to ask yourself, Maybe you, I, I told you that story because sometimes beliefs are deeply ingrained and examples help us to see our blind spots. But the truth is I shouldn't have to tell that story to not be disregarded.
Let's read Galatians 2, 11 through 14 together. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul. Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? There's a ton that could be said here, a lot more backstory I could give than I'm going to, but I'm trying to be abbreviated. Um, The bottom line here is that there was a group of people that thought everybody should be circumcised. Obviously, the Gentiles weren't because they weren't a part of the Jewish culture before that mandated that, and so there was this race-based tension. And Peter, before these other guys showed up that thought a certain way, would eat with the Gentiles, no problem. They all sat at the same table, broke bread together. But then when these other guys showed up, Peter began to withdraw, began to decide who he was going to eat with based on their ethnicity. And... uh I think it's what we need to look at here and the the scope of what I'm trying to address is this. I think we should ask ourselves, what did Paul say? The New American Standard Bible says that Paul said, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, and then says what he says. So other translations will say that what Paul said to Peter is, or when I realized that they were not living in line with the gospel. And so, Paul doesn't come to Peter and say, Peter, you're being a racist. He says, Peter, you're not living in line with the gospel. And why is that what he says? It's because the gospel answers all of the root causes of hate and discrimination based on all different types of things. The gospel is our only hope. And that's why Paul appeals to the gospel when correcting Peter and doesn't get drug into the symptoms or the specifics of Peter's sin. That's what Paul said. Why did Paul say it? Because the power of the gospel destroys all motives for discrimination. I'm going to say that again. We need to believe it. I don't know, I don't know if we do. Maybe it, it, this, this has to not be a head thing. It's got to get down into our hearts. The power of the gospel destroys all motives for discrimination. Every single one. How does it do that? How does the gospel do that? Again, a lot more could be said. But I'm compelled by God's spirit to spend a significant portion of our time together today praying. And so... I'm going to just mention some things and and go less in depth than I normally would, but I want to at least explain what I'm saying because I don't think for me to just say to you the power of the gospel destroys all motives for discrimination uh, in kind of a broad blanket ways is quite enough. So how does the gospel do that? How does the gospel destroy 
all discrimination motivations. First, the gospel unites us in our spiritual bankruptcy. The gospel has a uniting effect because it, it levels the playing field for everybody. It, it doesn't take into regard, and, and when I say gospel, most of you that have been here once or twice, you know that for us the gospel doesn't, isn't just uh, limited to the good news of the fact that Jesus has saved us, but it also includes the reason he needed to. And so when we understand the bad news of the gospel, even in that, <laughs> the fact that every single one of us suffers from the spiritual bankruptcy that is a result of sin, every single one of us is, is dead in sin without the hope of Christ. The, the bad news of the gospel unites us, puts us on a level playing field, understanding that every single one of us is suffering from the effects of sin. And so just in that, in that first way, it, it begins to destroy our motivations because most of the time what we tend to do is compare ourselves to others. We minimize our own faults and we amplify or magnify the faults of others. Um, we're not very good at looking in the mirror figuratively and understanding that our sin is just as wretched, our sin is just as damning, our sin is just as damaging to the relationship between God and man and uh, its, its effects upon culture and all of creation. All of us are indicted together. None of us is perfect. And so we are, the gospel unites us in the fact that we're all in trouble without the gospel. The second thing the gospel does is it unites us in our singular hope for redemption from that spiritual bankruptcy. So not only does it tell us that each of us is in desperate need of a savior, it provides for us all the exact same savior. So I don't care what creed you come from, I don't care what country you're from, I don't care what your background is, if you were rich or poor, I don't care what color you are, I don't care. Every single one of us has suffered the stain of sin. Every single one of us has been disconnected from God because of imperfection, because of the curse, and because of the fall, because each one of us has failed to meet the holy and perfect standards of God. So each of us needs a Savior, and for all of us, we are provided that same Savior. His name is Jesus. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how you talk. It doesn't really matter what your perspective is. We are all put on an equal playing field. We are all, there, there's a great equalizing that happens when the truth of the gospel comes in and, and provides a grid for which we, we view all of humanity. All of us desperately need a Savior, and all of us desperately need to come to that same Savior, and his name is Jesus. And when we do that, the gospel tells us that we are united as a family. You see, the reason I say the gospel is our only hope is because equality and justice and all of these, these things that we know need we need as a people, if they're motivated from something other than the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, his very character and nature, then they really have no standing. Why is it justice should be done for all? Why is it that we are all equal? It's because God has told us so. And if our motivation for pushing for those things and fighting for those things 
is not grounded in the truth of the Word of God like I believe it was for Dr. King. I believe in the middle of the 20th century, God Almighty did a move upon the earth, and he used men and women that understood what God says about humanity, and that the gospel leaves no room whatsoever in any situation for discrimination, for mistreating people, for dealing with someone as if they're lesser than. The gospel groups us all together in our desperate need and also in the answer, that being Christ. Any other motivation for those things can, can be picked apart, but when God is the ultimate authority, when God is the one who created all things, says, no, this is the way it is. All of you have been created in my image. Then we have something to stand upon when we say, there is no basis whatsoever in light of the truth of the scriptures for anybody to be mistreated, discriminated against, held down, or treated in any other way than a precious son or daughter of God. And I'm thankful that's true. The gospel unites us in our spiritual bankruptcy. The gospel unites us in our singular hope for redemption. And the gospel is the only way. It's the only way. I need you to think with me about this. Is this true? Question it. The gospel is the only way we can truly love one another, which is what we need. I don't know if we believe that. I, I, don't, know if, I don't know if we understand the need for God's involvement for love to be real. But 1 John 3.16 tells us, by this we know love. By this we understand what love is. We have all kinds of minimized and perverted understandings of what love is. The way we use the word, the things that we, we say that we'll just flippantly say that we love, all of it, 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 it indicts us to this fact that we oftentimes don't understand how high and sacred and beautiful love is and how much it flows completely from the character of God and thus, without his involvement, we won't have real, true love and, and the power that it brings. See, unity can't happen without love. Peace can't happen without love. Justice can't happen without love. We need love. And if we need love, we need God. when we look at the problems that we're facing. There's so many things that we could look at. There's so many things that we can emphasize, and people are. There's so many things that we could focus on and try to drill down to as, as, as an issue to be fixed. But we need God's help, and we need his wisdom. We need him to lead us and guide us and give us discernment to not get drug into the ditches of, of auxiliary symptoms. And we need his discernment to help us get past the symptoms and into the root and find the problem. And much of the problem, much of what's, what, what feeds mistreatment of people and oppression of people and angst and anger between people is fear. Fear is always there misunderstanding, and it's fed by the deception of the enemy. Ephesians 6, we need, we need to ask ourselves as we think through these things, why did God, by his Holy Spirit, inspire Paul to make sure we understood that our battle is not against flesh and blood? 
Why is that made so clear for us? Well, I think it's because God knows we have a tendency to make flesh and blood our enemies. Our vision is short, and we just look at what's right in front of us, and we don't see past. We don't see into the root. We don't see past to what's actually behind the scenes causing the problems. Fear and insecurity and misunderstanding, all fed by deceptions given out freely by our enemy and the forces of darkness, these things constantly create a circle of avoidance and mistreatment and misunderstanding and misaligned perspectives. We need to be able to defeat fear. And, and 1 John 4.18 tells us that perfect love casts out fear. We need the love of God. We need the love of God to be at work in the people of the earth. And the reality is, friends, we cannot share the love of God with people without sharing the gospel with them because what 1 John 3.16 is telling us is if you just tell people you need to love each other, just love each other, we just need love. If you tell them that, they're not going to get it all the way. They're not going to really understand what's being said because we can't understand what love really is if we don't understand what God means when he says it. And so God told us how to understand what he means when he says it. He said, by this you know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. And so we can't preach love without preaching the gospel because they won't quite grasp even what we're talking about. What do we see in Jesus laying down his life? We see him, the highest, the most majestic, the one who was there at the creation of the world. We see him laying himself low for the sake of his enemies. We see him sacrificing everything to love those who didn't even love him yet. That is what love looks like. That's the perfect love that casts out fear. But without the gospel, we can't preach an ethic of love. Without the truth of the scriptures, we can't say to people, just love each other, because even if they try, they'll come up short, because they'll be working from some other definition generated from themselves, cultural conditioning. I don't know where all of our definitions come from, but if God is love, if God is the source of love, if God is the one who has given us the mandate to love one another, if if all of that is true, we have, to, we have to care deeply about what that actually means. And the only hope we have for understanding the depth of it is to look at what it is God says love looks like. And he says it looks like Jesus on the cross. How do we address these things without the gospel? The gospel is our only hope. It's the only hope we have. We can't take implications of the gospel and try to mold people's behavior with those implications. We have to get them the gospel. Because we have a lot of problems. We have a lot of symptoms, but all of them down at the core come down to issues of the heart. Sin is the problem. Fear is the problem. Hate that comes from fear and misunderstanding is the problem. And unless hearts are changed by the power of God and by the power of his gospel, behavior modification will only take us so far. Legislation will only take us so far. Our hearts need to be changed. Who changes hearts, Love City? 
Jesus does. The gospel's our only hope. Have you heard me say that? I'm just trying to say it so that if you didn't hear anything else, you leave out of here today with that. The gospel is our only hope. And it does answer these things, broadly and particularly. It's our only hope. We see the implications of the love of God in Jesus uh, responding to a question with a parable. You know the story. A scribe stands up and says, uh, Teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? And he says, You're going to need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe, who knows his motives, but the scribe says, well, who's my neighbor? I think he's, I think he's hoping for some clarity to figure out, well, surely there's limits to that, right? I mean, how could I possibly love everybody? And, and, and Jesus, of course, answers with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says there's a guy that gets robbed and beat, and then there's another guy that comes along the guy that gets robbed and beat is probably considers himself superior to the guy that comes along afterwards. The Samaritans were looked down upon. And yet the Samaritan comes along and he displays the love of God. He comes, puts the man upon his own beast. He takes money out of his own pocket, pays for the guy to be taken care of, pays so that he can eat, pays so that his wounds can be bound up, so that healing can be brought to him. And then Jesus tells the story, and then he asks the question, so, so who's the loving neighbor here? And so what he does in doing that is he lets us know. You don't get to limit. You don't get to put parameters upon who you love and who you reflect the love of God to. So what he's saying is, I want us to understand the gravity of this that we are supposed to love every single person with the kind of love that Jesus has loved us with. Us with. Are you overwhelmed by that? Do you understand that that, aside from the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, that's an impossible task? Jesus loved us by considering us more important than himself in every way, dying in our place for our sins. He considered every single one of us more important than him. The call of God is that we do that for our neighbor. And that's explained to us as essentially anybody you're going to come in contact with. That's impossible without the Spirit of God. That's impossible without the power of the gospel. And that is why I'm appealing to you to think through this and to understand this... This drives me to my knees because I know I can't do this without God. I know we can't do this without him. We don't have a chance. The problems are too many, too complicated, and too big, and the answer is too much for mere humans to accomplish. And so if we try, we're just going to be frustrated. And that's a lot of what's happened. People have tried to do this without God, and they realize it doesn't work and they get frustrated. They think it's impossible. They think there can't be unity. There can't be healing. There can't be reconciliation. 
If God is who the scriptures say he is, then yes, there can. There can be healing, and there can be reconciliation, and there is hope. I don't care how bad it looks. There's hope because of Jesus and because of his gospel. Always. And we're gonna, I, don't, I don't know what everyone else is going to do, but we're going to believe God for it. And we're going we're gonna to lay ourselves at his feet, and we're going to ask him what our part is. We're going to ask for wisdom, and we're going to ask for his help to be ambassadors of his perfect love into this world. And we're not going to give up. We're going to believe him because he's given us enough reason that we should trust him. He's proven that he's faithful. He's proven that he's powerful. If he can save us, then he can help us and he can use us to address the issues of our day. He can anoint us and empower us with his love. I'm just asking you to believe God with me. I'm asking you to take a realistic look at the troubles and the problems that we face, to understand that no man-made attempt to address and fix them is going to work. I'm asking you to acknowledge that we desperately need God's help, and I'm asking you to join me in asking him for that help. And I believe he'll answer. I believe he'll show us what to do. I believe he'll empower us and anoint us and help us. We need it. We need him. May we be a people who understand we are all imperfect and suffering from the effects of sin. May we be a people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one and only hope that all mankind has for redemption. And may we be a people who reflect the beautiful and perfect love of God to the world, knowing that real love has the power to vanquish the fears and deceptions that divide us. Amen. We are now going to spend some time asking God to help us. There are several people who will be leading us in prayer as we seek God for wisdom and ask him to move powerfully and be glorified in the healing of our land. I'm going to ask you to join us in this time of prayer. I'm going to ask you to believe God with us. I'm, I'm believing that this is going to matter. This is not some trinket or some trite nod. This is, this is a realization of the desperation of the situation. And this is a realization that our hope alone is in Jesus. So we're going to ask him to help us. And I'm asking you to join us in doing that. Second Chronicles 7.14 says this. And my people who are called by my name, if they'll humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and let's ask him for that. Precious Father, we ask that 
that you would keep this before our eyes. Even if the media doesn't. God, may our hearts be troubled as long as your heart is troubled by these things. May we have a passion and a boldness and a fire. May we refuse to accept the status quo. May we go into this world armed with the revolutionary gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, please give us the strength not to weary in well-doing. Because as we pray regarding these things, we listen and we hear your voice and we obey whatever it is you ask us to do. God, I know there has been hate and jealousy since Cain and Abel. And so it is not necessarily going to be quick. But God, we are committed. We are committed to fight injustice in your name. But help us to fight your way. God, help us to fight the right enemies. Help us, please. Help us to see these things through your eyes. That we may not be deceived. That our efforts may be fruitful and they may bring glory to your name. Help us. Lord, please help us. You are our only hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.